Welcome to Trading for Keeps. This is Brian. And this is Michael. Today, we have a special guest with us, Andrew Piccinelli. And he is a 19-year-old with a very interesting startup. I'm not going to get too much into it right now, but I just want to, first off, welcome to the show, Andrew. We really appreciate you coming on. Thank you, guys. Scott, Brian, always happy to be here. <laughs> and I am... Um, do apologize. I'm using somebody else's computer. My name is Michael, but it's it's quite all right. Oh, <laughs> sorry. I, I just just read up the names of that. So, uh, well, Michael, Brian, you know. It's no worries. Good. No We're worries. not cutting any of that. So great. <laughs> don't yeah, don't cut it. Let me embarrass myself. <laughs> <laughs> right at the right at the get go. This is a good start. I like it. So, anyways, Andrew, we really do appreciate you coming on. Uh, we were introduced uh, through a mutual friend on on LinkedIn there. And you've got a really interesting uh, business that you've just started. I guess you're in the beta phase. And I want to get to that. But I wanted to start with, you know, you're 19 years old. What, what brought you to this situation? What is kind of your first, inter- I usually ask what your first interaction with the market is. Um, I noticed that you were a blogger for Seeking Alpha. Um, how did you, when did you really start with the, uh, so, with the stock market or private equity or whatever you're in right now? Yeah, yeah. So, so it started off a couple years back. Um, when I was actually 15. And uh, for Christmas, my family sometimes likes to go to places that are warm, uh, because my dad hates the cold. And you know, I I also hate the cold. Um, But this Christmas, for some reason, my my mom decided we should go down to uh, Palm Springs, Palm Desert, that area in California. Now, for those of you unaware, during the winter time, it, it, the highest it gets is like 60 degrees. So if you're thinking like really beautiful, you know, warm white sand beaches and, and pools you can get into, that wasn't the case. It was uh, just too cold to get in the pools. And of course they don't have any hot tubs or anything down there. So we just were in a desert with nothing to do. And uh, we saw this movie that had just come out that was about uh, stocks and trading. It was called The Big Short, and it's the famous movie now. Um, and it was kind of the first taste I got of anything involving the stock market. And I walked into this movie theater and I walked out like a changed man. I uh, I wasn't even a man at that point. I was 15. And uh, I, I started looking into the, the stocks um, and, and things on Wall Street and, and the whole lifestyle. Uh, it's a really good movie. It's selling the lifestyle. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, technical and, and in the weeds stuff in that movie. But, uh, you know, the, the guys in, in suits walking around with, you know, swearing every other word and, and yelling on these phone calls and, and, and acting like all tough and stuff. Uh, that looks fun to me. I thought this looks like a cool career. And they're also all filthy rich. So, you know, probably a good career to go into, start, start thinking about finance. Um, and then I read sort of the whole website of Investopedia at the time. Investopedia was a much smaller back then, um, four years ago than it is now, where it was only like 40 articles, I think. But there was nothing to do in this desert. It was barren. It was, it was boring. So I just kind of sat there. Um, in the room reading that for a bit. And then later on, I, uh, when we got back, I read the book for the big short. A um, couple months later, looked into a company a lot of traders are, are very well aware of called AMD. Uh, back when it was $4, 
uh, and 50 cents a share. And I say, they've got this new graphics card coming out. Um, I'm going to put some money into it. And so, you know, you can't open a stockbroker account until you're 18. Uh, so that was a problem for me. But uh, my dad said yeah, I could put it in his name if I got the money for it. So I did. Um, I, I think what it was is back then all, all I had was like cash. So I handed him a stack of bills and then he handed me a, a password and a username. And, um, and I had this account and then I, I started trading with it, um, sort of swing trading over, over the periods of, of like two or three months. I got into AMD at 457, got out at $12, went from AMD, flipped to their competitor, NVIDIA. Uh, and at that point, it was election day uh, where Trump won the election. But more famously, NVIDIA went up 20% in one day. So I caught that. Um, I was trading in class. I actually vividly remember that day uh, trading in class. My history teacher got so mad at me for being on my phone the entire time. And I was like, you know, there, there is history being made here. I'm not, I'm not interested in reading about the Ottoman empire. I'm interested in making some fucking money right now, you know, and that's what I, that's what I did. Um, <laughs> happened a lot more before the end of the year. I got in a lot of trouble, uh, did that sort of as a job, ended up actually making money off of it, uh, and getting more ingrained in finance. And while I was doing that, I was getting into these communities, online forums, Discord servers, uh, Slack groups, whatever. Slack wasn't as big back then as it is now, but uh, then I start meeting some of these guys with small investment funds. Um, the ones who tend to be best at trading do it professionally in some, you know, some uh, capacity. Uh, and this was before, I was kind of during the Robinhood rise where everybody started getting a trading account. Um, but this is kind of right before then, uh, and, and then moving towards into that. And they, uh, th these people all kept telling me about this problem. They said, you know, we've got this investment fund. I manage like 250K. This is a, a friend of mine, but I can't get more investors because I can't market my fund. Um, I'm not allowed to have a website with any sort of information on it. I'm not allowed to buy ads. Uh, so I have a blog and I hope that people reach out to that blog. And that's what, that's what they said. And yeah, I did write for Seeking Alpha a bit, wrote a couple of articles um, and met some of these folks through there. They also wrote there as sort of promotion for their small investment funds um, and sort of saw this gap in the market. I've always known I wanted to get into like a startup or something um, because the show Silicon Valley came out, you know, there's the whole Steve Jobs thing. Um, everybody sees Elon Musk, whatever, all of these Silicon Valley guys, um, especially, you know, as a teenager, uh, that, that gives you really big starry eyes. Uh, so I always knew I wanted to start a company, but I didn't quite find one that, that I thought would take off. Um, I had a few, few little ones, like I sold t-shirts on Amazon uh, back when I was 16. I sold coffee mugs when I was 17. Um, and then I sort of moved into this when I was 18. And this is the only one that kind of caught wind of anybody and, and started getting people to like believe in it, even though it's one of the least sexy companies you could probably think of, um, you know, aside from maybe trash collection. We, I, I've got this sort of joke where, you know, I, uh, over the summer, 
I tried to describe what I was doing to this girl I was on a date with. And uh, I didn't go on a second date because uh, I was like talking for five minutes. And then after that, I realized I'm like, she has no idea what I'm talking about. I did a terrible job. Um, and I look like, you know, uh, this, this guy who, who is doing something really boring. So I tried to figure out the best way to describe what, what my company does uh, to specifically girls that I go on dates with. Uh, but it also works for everybody else, right? That's so, uh, <laughs> so I'll say, by all means, tell us what it is your your startup does then. Yeah, so um, there are all these companies out there. They take people's money and they invest it, and they get paid with the profits. Those people are really hard to find, and they can't advertise themselves. So we find investors for them. Uh, we get the people to give them money, and. Uh, that's what we do. We, we buy these databases. We look through the databases. We reach out to these people. We get them on this software platform. And then uh, the investors and the, the investment companies can talk to each other. And that's what we do. And that name of your company is DeCheck? Yes, DeCheck. That's, that's right. It, it means like uh, sort of the check you get when you're getting an investment, right? The very last step of an investment is the check. So uh, uh, D-Check, I, I did that name mainly because it didn't exist before. I could get the .com and we had the whole front page of Google. I mean, if you Google my company's name, everything is owned by us, like all of the results on there. Um, so that was, th that's another reason we chose it. No, that's perfect. And we'll, we'll definitely link to uh, link to your uh, website in our show notes here. So it sounds like your your process was a lot of it for maybe smaller, lesser known funds. Is that correct? And when we, when we say funds, we're, we're talking about hedge funds. Is that right? Yeah, hedge funds, private equity funds and um, real estate. So uh, hedge funds are ones that trade public markets, private equity trade private markets, and then real estate is self-explanatory. Um, invest in property. And we've found that on the, on the smaller end of these funds, uh, those are the ones we try to try to go and talk to because the ones on the higher side have like a full-time guy for marketing. Um, but when I say smaller, I don't necessarily mean a couple hundred thousand. I mean less than a hundred million. So there's a huge gap between funds with like a lot more than a hundred million and everyone else below that. So if you're a fund managing like 98 million or something like that uh, versus a fund that's managing 150, there's like a barrier there that, that you haven't quite broken through yet. And you won't have access to a lot of resources before that. It's, it's sort of like the, um, I guess I can go back to the movie, The Big Short, you know, when they're in that room, they are trying to get this thing called an ISDA, which is like a seat at the big boys table. Uh, that they can use to get access to big bank things. They can use to uh, open accounts and trade certain certain derivatives. But also, it's more like the access to the networks, right? A personal network. You're not going to be invited to certain events, um, or you're not going to be able to hold like a, a convention table at certain events unless you have uh, like 150 to 200 million. Everyone below that is sort of excluded from that. They're told to not show up and they're told to not do that. So 
you know, even, even if, if this fund manages 90 million, uh, they're still considered small and they're still considered uh, irrelevant. And so we go and, and we say, well, to us, you're the most relevant and we're sort of coming in when nobody else will. Yeah. And I think that's, I've read a little bit about hedge funds. Um, well, I guess I, I shared the book with Brian, but an American hedge fund by Tim Sykes. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. Yes. I've okay. Read it. Yeah. So he was in that and he was in the very small side of things, but I think he had like a $5 million account and, or a $5 million fund. And everybody said, well, come back to me when you're in 10, you know, come back to me when you have a $20 million account. So he's like, I need, Nobody wants to invest in the small account because I don't have a big enough account, but how do you get a big enough account if nobody will invest in you? So it's kind of one of those exactly. things, what do you get first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah. And, and these fund managers don't know how to get past that barrier because, okay, if you're a company, right, you're, you're doing whatever you do to get revenue. How you get to, to getting more customers is you put money into marketing um, and then, or you, you know, put, efforts into marketing uh, instead of just buying ads. But these funds literally can't. It, it's illegal for them to advertise. They can't even put their performance numbers on their websites. Uh, and so if you've seen, I, I call them shitty useless websites that these funds have because every single one of them looks the same. It's like a picture of New York, right? In black and white with some very fancy serif font on it. And then below that is like a one paragraph explanation of their investment thesis and then an email address. And that's the whole website. Why do you even have a website if, if it's a paragraph, you know, use an email signature instead. Um, and so when these funds have this problem, okay, I have to raise another 15 million for everybody to talk to me. But you know, the minute they get to 20, they're gonna be told to go to a hundred and they're gonna see the problem again, right? So they, they don't really know what to do. I mean, it's, it's more like straight, solid networking. And so what the industry tells them to do is it tells them to buy a $6,000 seat at a uh, conference, like where some speaker is and there's investors there. And these, these guys holding these events, uh, like the, the lowest they'll charge will be like $6,000 a person. Um, and I have a fund who uh, was going to one of these events and he said, yeah, I, I can potentially get one investor lead out of this. I'm trying to raise 10 million, but I only managed 200,000. So, you know, 6,000 out of 200,000 is 3%. So I'm spending 3% of my assets under management to get into an event. What, I mean, to, to get one investor, what, what does that look like? It's, it's pretty ridiculous. So, all of these guys have this problem and they can only raise money by, by doing ridiculous things like, like going to these, these dinners that have terrible food and uh, don't, you know, get them any links or whatever. Um, and you don't even get a good meal out of it. Yeah. I mean, he calls me after the event. He's like, there's terrible food. I got maybe two meetings, one, one additional lead. Um, and, and, uh, it was the, the speaker was terrible too. I mean, all of these events suck, but they have to go to these events because that's the only way to do it. You know, um, there's no alternative. So, so we are the alternative. You can come to us uh, as a fund, you know, for basically free and uh, we'll try to get you a, a million dollars. So, so just out of curiosity, uh, how, how, I guess you're, you've started off early. Have you had 
many successes linking people to these funds? And have you been able to, you know, make these connections yet? Yeah, so, so we had this beta in March. Um, now, because we didn't have a certain license called a broker-dealer license, which we're almost at, um, we were slated to get that in January or February, one of the two. Uh, we aren't allowed to sort of take a fee from any money that the fund raises. Um, and we're technically not allowed to market the uh, investment funds directly to investors. We can put them in a room together and we can say you can market yourselves, but we're not allowed to say this fund, you know, does excellently or can do excellently. Um, and you should invest in that fund if you think that that's your, your proper uh, you know, investment strategy for, for you as an investor. So we're not allowed to do that until we have this license, which we're going to get soon. But we did get a solid amount of people on both sides and we could see them talking to each other. Um, we could see a couple of uh, investors talking to a couple of funds. And I believe two of those conversations led to investments, uh, which is interesting because we only had 13 funds on the platform. Uh, at that time, right? So that's a pretty good hit rate, I would say. We have a huge backlog that, that we're looking to fill on our launch, which is gonna happen, you know, the minute we get that license. Um, on our on our full-time launch, where we do take the transaction fees and we do uh, allow them to transfer money or we handle the money transfer, I should say, um, about that. So we've got about, uh, it's looking like we're going to, see 60 funds on our, on our launch. And then on the investor side, uh, pretty significant amount. I mean, that, that we should be able to see those investments yeah, being I'm made. Just, I'm just curious, cause like typically, as I understand it, you know, to invest in a hedge fund, you have to be an accredited investor, right? So that kind of just yeah. narr narrows the pool down from the general population. So there's a specific kind of demographic or, you know, person, person that you're trying to reach to, to, to find those investors. So I guess, what's your strategy for your, your site to reach out to them and find those people and get them onto your platform? Yeah, so um, you're totally right about that. We can only market to roughly the top 10% of the United States. Um, and we can only, because we can only get those, those people on, on the platform. Um, so, you know, for those unaware, an accredited investor is somebody with more than a million in net worth who that's not part of their primary house, uh, or somebody who has more than two hundred thousand individually, three hundred thousand uh, jointly, and you know that's not everybody. That's the vast, uh, the, the the vast minority, I guess. You know, there's there's uh, roughly, as I said, ten percent of the U.S. by net worth or by income matches that. Uh, which means 90% are folks we can't even talk to, or we shouldn't even talk to. Um, and how we get to those people is interesting because buying ads for us or, or getting placements on, on different sponsored things that, that has a, uh, a, a large percentage of an audience like that, those are the most expensive places to put ads um, because those people have the most money, therefore they spend the most money, therefore everybody wants their business. So we decided to get a little bit creative with this and figure out, okay, who does everybody ask for investments? Well, most of these people have financial advisors and they have uh, ones that they go to roughly once a quarter, uh, maybe even, even more than that. And they're going to talk to them about it and their, their uh, advisor recommends investments to them. So our strategy involves going out uh, signing up an investment advisor and uh, 
having them bring their clients on the platform. So for example, um, we have, I can't give any customer names at this time, but we have one that uh, has about 200 high net worth clients. And uh, we think if we sign them up uh, on day one, about 50 of them will come in the first quarter uh, and then an additional 50 the next quarter. And then they're going to see probably to get the other half. So that's one sale for us, but 50 customers on the platform, if that makes sense. And we've seen this success because the financial advisors have the same problem of finding these investments for their clients. Um, and they have to look like they're being innovative. I mean, everybody's got a Robinhood account nowadays. Everybody's got, people are moving to things like Acorns, Betterment, uh, Wealthfront, things that aren't professional financial advisors that take 1% every year. So these advisors are trying to say, we're better than those apps for this reason. And right now, that, that's not a very long list. Uh, so we're trying to add you know, another item to that list. We don't charge them anything uh, so that they sign up. Well, I think that's great. So basically, you're providing essentially a free service to the financial advisor, a free service to the investor, and then you get paid on the back end if they actually make an investment. Am I understanding that about right? So, yeah, so we don't actually charge any money to the investment side. So uh, this is actually something we had to, had to figure out over the course of the last couple of weeks. Um, we, if we charge on the investment side, investors say, okay, we've got all these fees. Uh, they're going to make fewer investments. But we're charging on the, the investment fund or the hedge fund side where uh, the funds will pay out like three and a half percent over the course of two years uh, to my company, essentially, or I guess my broker dealer company. Um, they would be sending out these uh, payments once a month or whatever. Uh, and we're actually going to factor that with loans. So, so whenever you raise money from, from the platform, let's say you raise a million dollars. Okay, we're a nice round number. Uh, you have to pay us three and a half percent of that, which is $35,000, but you don't want to pay that right away. You want to pay that uh, as you go, because paying that right away means it takes money out of your fund to make investments with. So you take on a loan from a bank and then you pay that off over the course of two years or something like that. So it ends up being more like 3.6% uh, total, but ultimately that's how that goes. So we get the money up front. Um, investors don't pay anything and, and funds pay the fee over the course of two years. Okay. That's one thing you mentioned. That, so you're getting your broker dealer license. I didn't realize that. I was, I was curious about that coming in how, you know, what, I guess, regulations apply to you or what the, the compliance is like for you as kind of a intermediary. So what, what's the process of getting your broker dealer license like? So there's a couple ways to do it. Um, you can either buy a broker dealer shell company or you can set one up yourself. So uh, we were faced with these options back in the summer. Uh, we were deciding, okay, do I buy one and spend $50,000 for a shell company and then spend another 35,000 on lawyers to file the application to change that, uh, the business to our business, essentially. Um, that's called a CMA application. They end up being 
roughly five months or something, but you can start doing business about halfway through the application. And the other one is called an NMA application where you set up one of these shell companies yourself. Uh, you form an LLC and then you file another application there. Uh, this is, you see, this is how I describe it. It's the most sexy part of the business, right? Is <laughs> dealing with the government. Um, and so we have decided to set up our own essentially uh, and pay like 35,000 to a, a compliance company versus 85,000 that we would have paid by buying the broker dealer and then uh, setting up that application itself. So that just added a little bit to the timeline of when we can start doing the business, but that lets us polish the platform a bit more as well. And because of that, you know, we've set up a full compliance team. Uh, our compliance team is formed of, of, of four people uh, and it holds all of the securities licenses between the four of them. Uh, so that, that's something that we set up. Uh, that was kind of what I was working on last month. And, uh, so we essentially have like two lawyers and, and two straight financial compliance guys on the, on the team, not including myself or two other founders. So that upped our team to seven people. Uh, and that's kind of the entry level for what you have to have. So, I mean, when I say I, I feel that the regulations in this space are tight and maybe even too tight, you know, that's up for argument, but, uh, my basic launch cost to just get a dollar into my pocket of revenue end up being on the higher end of the $200,000 range. So we're going to end up having to spend 290,000 to get a dollar of revenue and you know, $1 versus a million dollars of revenue. Uh, it's the same bottom end cost versus the whole marketing thing. So before I've even spent any money on, the, on building the platform and any money on marketing or sales, uh, that's how much we, we've had to spend on, on various regulatory things. Andres, I'm kind of curious. So I come from a patenting background. And so, and I also kind of work with some small companies in my, during my regular day job. The one kind of question we asked people was, you know, what's your competitive advantage? So I guess, you know, what's, what's stopping someone else from like a big name company from doing this tomorrow and just making a bigger marketplace and a bigger exchange, you know, and maybe, you know, undercutting you guys? Uh, or do you have something that you think, you know, you guys will become dominant? You're just the first movers. I guess, what's your, what's your edge over somebody who wants to try to do this tomorrow? With more assets. So, so that's that's a really good question that every single one of my uh, investors has asked. Um, so what's interesting is there's a couple of a couple of things, right? So we've got the the moat, the regulatory moat, right? Where if we had to spend this much, that means somebody else has to spend this much. That doesn't stop a bank from doing it because banks have you know plenty of money, but it does stop another person like myself. Uh, from doing it. So that's, you know, kind of a baseline thing. That's not exactly the, the, the most uh, advantageous of a thing, but that's how every high regulatory industry goes. Now, uh, the legitimate competitive advantage we have is probably in our, in our processes of both evaluating the investments and, uh, and providing the investments and, and discovering the investments ourselves. So, uh, for us, it's finding the funds. Uh, we've gotten pretty good at it. We've gotten the ability to sort of build these networks of these smaller funds, whereas a big bank might have a lot of really large funds, but they don't have very many of the smaller ones. I like to say 
most of these guys are in their like garage or their basement or something like that uh, in a very regular looking life and they're impossible to find. And as somebody who is also in, you know, a garage or a basement, I can think like them and uh, whereas a, a big bank can't. And I know that for a fact. I mean, if you ask me, would you stake your entire career, social life and income on a company based on banks being slow at their jobs, I would say yes to that every single time. So that's another one there. Um, and then we just have these automations that, that the banks don't have yet. Like we can automate the whole diligence process looking into the, into the funds books. We can automate uh, adding contacts and, and messaging people. I mean, we've automated a whole CRM and uh, these, banks, I guess they could set that up as well. I mean, any, any sort of technology advantage, you can just throw a bunch of engineers at and have them solve it as well. But uh, I don't think that they could, they could do it in, in the same way we have without spending a lot more money. And you've, I know you've managed to get some investment. I read uh, an article that said you actually uh, got $100,000 in investment earlier this year. Is that right? Uh, that was actually late last year. So I guess it might've come out in January. Um, that was sort of our beginning family friends. Uh, between then, we've raised more than that. Um, I haven't really disclosed enough of it, but you know, you can do the math. If I have to spend two hundred ninety thousand, and I, I still have a company, um, <laughs> then you can you can figure that out. But uh, yeah, we've raised more since then, and we're actually in the middle of uh, sort of a continuous raise before launch, um, and then we're planning on raising more after we've scaled up our revenue. So uh, we're, we're looking into seeing what our revenue numbers look like. And then the goal is to raise a fairly substantial seed round uh, about a year from now um, in, the, in the sort of $5 million range, depending on our revenue. So, yeah. Okay, excellent. So it sounds like things are coming along. People are, how, and it sounds like you were a bit of a hustler beforehand. You mentioned that, you were able to come up with a few, I don't even ask how you came up with a few thousand dollars to start your brokerage account, but I know you, you were mentioning that you had sold uh, t-shirts on Amazon. And so you were really probably bootstrapping at that point using your own money. And how is it now actually having outside investment come in? Cause I, I'm a bootstrapper. I, you know, people are like, Oh, you're an entrepreneur. I'm like, ah, I'm more of a hustler, you know, cause I've never actually, I've never taken any outside investment. I've got, you know, plenty of kind of hustles going on, but I just, you know, it sounds like you're definitely an entrepreneur and wh tell me what's the mindset, just having other people's money at stake now versus just your own. So it's, yeah, it's very different. I mean, uh, there, there was more of a sense of urgency when it was my own money, which is kind of counterintuitive. Right. But, um, I had, so when I, when I started my t-shirt thing, I was, um, selling political t-shirts to both sides back in 2016. And I had, awesome, by the way, good on you. Perfect. I love that. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, so I had to, I had to take advantage somehow. I saw the, the opportunity. Um, and I had like very little money. I think I started it with 500 bucks um, where I bought $400. I had $400 of working capital. I spent a hundred dollars on a Shopify membership. And uh, then I ended up making like three or 4,000 in gross, gross profit off of that. But, uh, you know, that was like, if the money runs out there, 
that's it. Nobody's going to fund me to sell t-shirts on Amazon, you know? Um, so, so there was a very definitive, if these things don't start selling right now, I can't keep running the business and the business ends. Uh, versus nowadays, it's kind of like, it's very different. Number one, there would be no way I could start this business on my own uh, at this age, at least, you know, the only, the only way I could bootstrap it is if I had a uh, pretty high income career for a couple of years, save up 400,000 and then launch it then. Um, and that's just the case because of, you know, these, these fixed expenses that we've got to have. So it was also, it, it was sort of freeing in a sense to not have to worry about raising money because raising money kind of sucks. Uh, it's never fun, but it was also, uh, you know, sort of debilitating if I wanted to spend like, let's say I wanted to expand the t-shirt business, I'd probably buy a screen printing uh, machine myself and, and print the shirts myself. Uh, and that would probably cost about $5,000 uh, that I would have to have come up with. And uh, I would have had to do that then. So I just didn't have that option. I would have had to keep selling them the way that I did. Versus now, if there is, let's say, a database we have to buy that could get us 10 more customers that each wanted to pay us you know, 10,000 each, uh, but the database itself costed 10,000. Now I can go out and say, look, this is why uh, we want to get this money. We have the opportunity to use the money and uh, it'll be beneficial on both sides if we take it. And, and that's sort of a, a basic example of be, the ability to, to bring in outside funding really frees uh, options up for somebody starting a business like this. There's a lot more you can do uh, a lot quickly or a lot more quickly than, than if you couldn't. So, uh, I, I actually prefer it this way. Um, I, I don't like the amount that I have to have raised right away. I would have preferred to have raised, you know, 50 then launched then uh, and then had revenue that I can just, you know, give, I, I, it's much easier to, to raise money after revenue than it is before revenue. Um, and obviously we have that, that large hurdle. So, uh, that's, that's sort of, sort of, uh, different there, but it's nice being able to say that I have resources that I can use. If I, if we need to get some sort of API, which we have to use a lot of, I, I don't have to say, oh, maybe we can pay you in four or five months. I can say, yeah, we can pay you now. Um, and get this service running that could bring us more customers and bring us more revenue. So something like that. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I guess you mentioned earlier that you weren't quite sure that it was necessarily the right thing to do with these high barriers to entry with all of the compliance and regulation. And we actually had a friend, uh, Michael Noss, episode 12, definitely check that out. But he's, he's a trader from Canada. And he was laughing at us being Americans and having this PDT rule. He goes, you guys call yourself the land of the free. And then you say you can only trade three times a week uh, to, to the little guys, essentially. Um, and, you know, and I've, I've read about that. I know in, in American Hedge Fund, who's complaining about that, all the regulatory things that basically kept regular people out of certain industries. They kept them out of the finance industry. They kept them out of, you know, hedge funds and other investments, even, even trading your account three times a week or five times a week. Um, but I, I'm kind of, you know, I'm on the, I'm on the same mindset. Because I always look at, you know what, if I go down to the 7-Eleven 
and want to spend ten thousand dollars in lottery tickets there's nobody there saying whoa whoa actually there's a 500 dollars limit on lottery tickets per day no 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 okay we'll take all that money in if you want to sit there at the casino and pull the pull the lever a thousand times there's nobody there to stop you so what i guess what are your takes you met you you alluded to the fact that you, you thought maybe the regulations are a little bit too strict feel free to give us your opinion on that because i think i might be in the same boat as you on this yeah, well, you know, what's interesting about financial regulation, or basically any regulation, is that it does exist for a reason. And when they were written, you know, there, there were reasons for um, the regulations to be there. Uh, as a lawyer, Brian, you probably are pretty familiar with that, um, maybe in a different sense, but that laws don't just exist because they exist. However, sometimes, you know, they are implemented with good intentions and then they end up uh they end up forcing industries in, in a different direction than, than maybe is best for everybody involved um a lot of the the broker dealer license regulations are there to protect people from making investments into companies like bernie madoff you know i mean they do exist for a reason but at the same time the companies that don't exist because the regulations are are there could have helped solve those problems independently. And it's my opinion that I I don't think it should be required to to have such a such a high uh, spend in, in the beginning to to start a company like mine. I I don't think that uh, people making investments into uh, funds that are known as high risk and known as, uh, you know, they, they have high returns, but, but they could also uh, go to zero, right? I mean, that's how these funds work. That's how stock works. But uh, the regulations that exist in the broker dealer space are there to prevent me from selling too many of those types of funds. At the same time, if there were more companies like that, you know, maybe the, the market would figure that out and, and say, the people who sell these kinds of funds go out of business and the ones who don't, don't go out of business. But what we're seeing instead is the people who uh, are trying to break into the space just end up not having the resources to fight the people in the space already. And then you get large banks doing everything like interactive brokers owns like the whole vertical basically in this space and in any space. And they, provide a broker dealer service to almost all the financial advisors in the country. Um, now it's nowhere near as good as ours, but it exists for them. And that means we have to come to these guys and we have to directly compete with that. And they say, well, you guys are a small company. These guys are a big company. Uh, we're used to dealing with big companies. So we're going to go with them instead. You know, I mean, that's, and then that's what you end up seeing. So it really is a, a sort of nuanced answer there, but, uh, if I, if I didn't, I'm not going to lie to you and say, I don't wake up and get annoyed about it every morning, you know? So. Well, and you mentioned Bernie Madoff. We've talked a little bit about Bernie Madoff in here. I've done some study on him. He's such a fascinating case, but he was writing half the regulations during his time, during his hedge fund. So it was like, he was just, and he basically, it sounded like he almost just didn't have time to manage his hedge funds. So he just kept saying that he was making a whole bunch and people kept giving him more and more and nobody ever checked on him. And at the same time, he was, like I said, when NASDAQ was like, how do we manage this? Or, you know, or the compliance SEC is like, well, what would you, how would you regulate this? Like they were coming to him for the advice and, and he was essentially influencing the laws that were being written. 
Um, so it's interesting that, you know, even though some of these laws might exist now to prevent something like him from happening, he was writing the laws during his time. Yeah, well, and, and something that could happen, you know, is a company that is very, very large could go to the government and try to pass a, a regu- another regulation that would, say, block my company from, from taking off, you know. And I would not be surprised about that. There, there's uh, one coming out in Salt Lake where um, only two of those scooter companies can be in the city at once. So what happens if you're a scooter startup in Salt Lake? You no longer have any business because the two the, you're going to have bird and you're going to have lime uh, and they're going to crush you and they're going to keep you. They're going to outlaw you from operating in the city. So what do you do? I mean, it's it's a similar you know potential risk for us and that could always happen. I I don't think these guys are going to be concerned enough to do it because I mean we we have two direct competitors in this space and uh, and and nothing else. So I don't think they're going to care enough, but you know, that's always a potential with financial regulations. And this happened a lot in 2008 when Dodd-Frank was being written um, is certain companies that didn't go bankrupt or weren't even close to going bankrupt ended up stopping a lot of new companies from coming in. So like this has happened in banking. Um, There have been three new banks approved in the country since 2008 for a bank charter, the whole country versus like two, 24 um, to, to 36 a year before 2008. So, you know, let's say you wanted to start a new bank and it's 2009. Well, what do you do? You don't. You find another business. Um, that's, that's what they were left with. And that's certainly a concern when you've got uh, people who have the ear of the government um, in, in, in an industry. That's that's interesting. That's really fascinating. I think you know, I didn't see that here in Raleigh, where we live. Uh, they came out with, I think, similar regulations about their about the scooters. Um, since you bring up scooters, I have to ask. I remember we actually had this interview scheduled for several weeks ago, maybe a month or two ago. I can't remember exactly. I believe there was an incident. Uh, it's a little off topic. Yes. Can you share what happened? <laughs> yeah. So um, that was a fun week for me. Uh, so I typically commute on an electric skateboard. I was doing it a lot, um, over the summer, uh, Salt Lake has really great bike lanes, which work really well for, uh, skateboards and electric skateboards are all the the rage. You know, everybody sees the Casey Neistat, uh, YouTube videos. Um, so I bought one about a year ago and I rode it everywhere. I was really good at it. I probably put about a thousand miles on it. Never fell once, uh, September 21st. I fell off my, my electric skateboard going like 15 miles an hour. Um, and, uh, I think I hit something in the street or, or, or something like that. Like there was a crack in the road, um, and the wheels on those things aren't very big. So I fell off, I got a major concussion, um, and a fracture in the side of my skull. Uh, and I spent like two nights in the hospital. I had severe memory loss. For, for a night or two and I had to uh I had to basically take the whole week off work so yeah it was pretty rough though I mean I've never I remember texting my co-founders um and I was like uh what what is the name of my company <laughs> I didn't know that 
I didn't know the name of my company and I didn't know what we were doing. I had actually just signed a sick ass business deal that day before I crashed and forgot all about it. Um, so, you know, there was that, but I probably one of the scariest nights of my life. I mean, I don't know what I would have done if my memories didn't return the next two days, but uh, that's why I canceled our last podcast. I had, I actually had a packed schedule that week. I had like 12 meetings, um, two days following that incident and, uh, with some pretty big folks sometimes, you know, I had like two VC meetings that I had to cancel, um, all sorts of things. And I was pretty mad about it, but I found out, you know, I, I couldn't really look at screens too much. And, you know, everything nowadays is done by screens. Nobody was having in-person meetings. So, so uh, there was that. Um, but yeah, that was, that was how I spent my, my last week of September. That was really fun. Well, you fully recovered now. We're, we're super stoked that you did manage to come on and that you remembered us. Yeah, no, I do have some like scars on my hand. I, I don't know if you can see that. There's some proof that I'm not lying to you, but um, yeah, I, I, uh, I wanted to come on this. This is a cool, I like talking with folks who, who are finance minded. So I wanted to make it happen, but uh, that week I just couldn't. <laughs> no, I get it. I totally get it. I just remember when initially we made the connection, you seem like such, yeah, I, I feel like I have a fairly good sense for people. Like you just seemed like you were on it. You wanted to be there. You wanted to be, and then all of a sudden you just disappear. I was like, this is strange. You know, we've had one or two other people that are flaked out, but like I've kind of seen the signs ahead of time. Like, you know, so I, I was like, hmm. And I just totally misread this guy, but then I saw your post and I was like, but I felt bad. I was like, oh goodness, I hope he's okay. So I'm, I'm yeah. glad you're you're uh, you're doing better now. So you're wearing a helmet now. I hope you're. I'm I'm now. not even I'm not even skateboarding now. Yeah, I um. So they told me they say, uh, first of all, I get I get this this call from my my uh, compliance lawyer who is part of this compliance team and and uh, he's he's kind of invested. Uh, like service into my company, basically that is not uh, specifically money, but he's put a lot into the company. He's a great guy. Um, and he calls me, he's got this thick New Jersey accent. And he said, you know, I'm not your uncle, but, but wear a fucking helmet next time. <laughs> and, uh, and then he hangs up. That's the whole phone call, <laughs> uh, which is great. So um, that happened one day after. And uh I am now wearing a helmet whenever I do something like that, but it's going to be a while. I think I'm going to switch to an electric bike, uh, like not like a motorcycle, like a bicycle that that has electric assist. Um, but for this whole season, I had I bought these brand new skis. I was going to go skiing a bunch, but now I can't go skiing this year uh, because you can't have like another sort of accident or it's almost permanent. So I've I've got to wait. But next year, you know, I'll be able to try out these almost brand new skis and, and I'll be able to, to risk my life once more. Sounds great. Well, I'm, well listen, we're glad you're doing better. I'm glad your investors are trying to keep you straight. Cause I mean, I, they, they put a lot of faith in you and a lot of money in you too. So I could imagine that they, uh, they want to see you up and up and at it and, and healthy and with your memory. Yeah. Well, you know, I, me and me and one of my co-founders uh, both almost died within the same week. So I have a co-founder who um, has a peanut allergy and he had to, and he ended up having to use his EpiPen while he was here actually, because some, um, some 
Thai restaurant had some peanut sauce and like a salad and he doesn't know what peanuts taste like. So he didn't know something was wrong until then, but he had to use that. Um, then I almost die. And so we then look at our third co-founder. We're like, well, you're up, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> so, um, I got a text from him. He's like, dude, I don't have a backup plan. Like, <laughs> come on. So, uh, yeah, I, I, figured that out. It's, it's actually opened, opened my eyes a lot, you know, as an experience. I think everyone should almost die at least once, um, you know, probably not more than once, but yeah, one time will, will get you set. It's good for your soul, right? As I like to say. Well, when I was still working, I had a day job for a long time. I gave it up recently. Um, but I always said that it's like, um, I had, you know, somebody that helped me out basically, basically my direct assistant. And I always, at the end of the day, was like, all right, do you know this, this, and this? It's like, you're going to be here in the morning. I go, in case I get hit by a bus, I always wanted to set up for, because, you know, at that, it was a construction company. We had 30, you know, 30 employees that worked out in the field. And if I wasn't, you know, there was, I just felt like it wasn't fair if I get hit by a bus tonight for them to not be able to make a paycheck the next day. You know, they all have families. They're going to be sad for me for a minute and everything, but yeah, they need to continue on with their life. So I think that kind of having that reality check, uh, it is good to that way you always make it a plan to make sure that somebody else can pick up in your place. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I, it, it kind of hit me that, Oh shit, seven people are, are now kind of relying on me day to day. And I have an additional, you know, pool of, of people who have given me their money to not lose. Um, and dying would, would effectively screw both of those groups. So uh, you know, I'm trying not to die because it would also not be in my best interest. But yeah, so so switching to a bike now, wearing a helmet um, by my lawyer's advice. And uh, so, yeah, there's that. Okay, well, good. Um, well, if I know we, we've got the website. If people wanted to get in touch with you any other way, do you have a good way for them to get in touch with you? Um, my LinkedIn, which is just my name, which is fairly unique. Uh, I don't think there exists any other Andrew Pignanelli's. Um, and it should come up at a Google search or, or anything like that. I know that's where I post the most recent updates um, for my company. We also, we were meaning to get a newsletter put together. So we'll probably do that pretty soon. Uh, having a new website up soon. So that will allow you to, to put your email in, stay in touch. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's all there is to it. All right. Well, is there anything that you want to leave us with? We have one more segment, so don't go anywhere. But is there anything else you wanted to add into the conversation here? Uh, I think that's everything for myself. I don't, I don't have any additional things. We covered, you know, my company, me almost dying, uh, terrible dates with girls. Yeah, that should be it. <laughs> all right. Yeah, I think so. Well, we have a, a fun segment we like to do at the end. And Brian brings up a question. It's the question of the day. It can be about anything, and you and me are just going to answer on the spot. I haven't heard it yet either. So, Brian, you're up. Sure. Well, this is kind of um, interesting. So, you, you, Michael has done some writing, and I, you, Andrew, you said you did some blogging for Seeking Alpha, which I know a lot of people read. And so, um, I also read a lot of Reddit and kind of these kind of blog posts and articles. And one thing that came up was a Bloomberg article that a lot of people were talking about. And they said, you know, is this next decade going to be the lost decade for the stock market? You know, are valuations too high? Or a lot of you know, people are getting older, blah, blah, blah. And I was just wondering, you know, is this clickbait or is this, you know, is that what these financial vloggers are trying to do? So I'm just curious in your, in your mind, when you guys are writing your articles or you're writing your opinion pieces on Seeking Alpha, number one, I think you're trying to communicate very interesting ideas, but do you try to just maybe 
write startling things just for to get you know hits and views and do you think that Bloomberg article where they got that opinion piece do you think that's a do you think there's some truth behind that or do you think this is just more a clickbait and is this what you know people at Bloomberg are trying to do so so I can answer that one pretty well um I 100% know that people on Seeking Alpha are, are trying to get clicks with, with outrageous titles. So my most successful article was um, predicting the collapse of a, the mortgage REIT market back in a year and a half ago. Uh, I said mortgage REITs are going to lose 90% of their value in the, next, uh, in the next three years, and then you should stay away from them. And I turned out to be right. So I, uh, because I mean, COVID was part of that, but also the Fed dropping rates, but you get more views if you say some outrageous shit. Um, so I did this, I tried to do this all throughout, uh, throughout high school when I was writing a high school paper is just make some batshit crazy claim and then figure out how to like, while I was writing the rest of it, figure out how to, how to support that so that the teacher would read it. And I ended up getting pretty good grades for that. So yeah, I'm sure sensationalism, uh, especially in finance, works really well. Um, and it's worked well for me. Uh, last decade, next, next 10 years, I don't know. I think everybody's always saying that the next 10 years are going to be a lost decade. Um, I think if real estate kept going higher while, while unemployment kept going up, I would say yes. But real estate is starting to fall down, um, which could actually improve things a little bit. And uh, valuations are also pretty high. I think we could see valuations going down. I don't know about last decade. I think we're just going to see a crash and then back to normal. Uh, but yeah, I mean, U.S. dollar is still a reserve currency. If that wasn't the case, I would start to be start to be spooked. But since it is, people tend to not care about the U.S. deficit or the debt um, and the Federal Reserve. I you love said, the federal. So you said a lot of really interesting things. I just want to pick your brain about one. So <laughs> there, there, there's so much, there's so much there, but the, the first part of it, you did, a, I guess you said you wrote an article that was, I guess, controversial or got a lot of clicks about mortgage REITs. So were there any particular mortgage REITs that you did like research on and like, what were your conclusions and thoughts? I'm just curious. Cause I'm, I've been kind of studying REITs lately, commercial REITs or, you know, different ones. And I'm just kind of curious what you said in that article and what was your thesis and do you still believe it? Yeah. Yeah. So, so mortgage REITs, um, what they do is they buy mortgages and then they take out loans and they basically arbitrage rates on um, mortgages versus uh, whatever, whatever rate they can get on, on loans themselves. And so what they would do is they would buy a bunch of these mortgages. Uh, they would yield a certain amount, then they would sell them for, for more um, by using a ton of leverage. They would get like 20 X leveraged on these loans essentially. And, uh, what that does is if the Federal Reserve raises rates, they get screwed. So uh, back in 2018, I, I think everyone remembers the crash when the Fed decided they wanted to raise rates again at the same time as the trade war happening and, and whatever. Um, people were kind of spooked in the, in the mortgage rate space. So they flipped and they bought a ton of insurance on raising rates. And then the Fed flips and goes down. So all of their insurance goes to zero and uh, they're left out in the cold. So uh, over the course of the next 10 months, they lost 70% of their value. And uh, when March hit, they just, they, they just went down. I mean, I, I looked at a couple specific ones. Let me see. Um, one of them is called Starwood. The other one was, um, I think it was Annalee. Uh, and then there, there's a bunch of them, but those are the ones that I predicted would go down. And, and I think, uh, 
the average loss on them was 60%. So that's, but that was sensationalist. That was true. I wanted it to be sensationalist because if I was right, it would pay off. So <laughs> that's what that is. That's great. That's a great story. Um, well, I, I would say that my titles and I, now I ghostwrite, so I can't quite disclose. So I'm always providing somebody else's opinion and they just, they'll usually give me a two minute soundbite about what their actual opinion is. And then I'm supposed to turn that into 3000 words. Um, but the title, the title is absolutely always pure clickbait. It is some kind of outrageous thing. You know, we always just, you know, is this it? And, you know, in the, one of the ways I always know to look to tell if the article is real or not is if there's a question mark at the end. If they say, you know, is this the next big crash? Question mark. Then they're saying, no, no, we, we're just saying it could be and it could not be essentially. Um, but the, they just put those words in there to kind of, yeah, for, for the clickbait. Um, but what I write, I always just try to say, okay, here's what we could happen. This is what could happen. You know, could we have a lost decade? Absolutely. Could we have a massive crash? Of course we could. The odds of an actual crash though are so like, everyone's always worried about this these massive crashes, but like they, they're so few and far between, you know, and everyone's always trying to pick the top, pick the top, pick, pick the bottom. People go broke trying to pick the top and pick the bottom. Anyone that says they know it's going to happen tomorrow is a liar. Yeah. And I think they just provoke a lot of uh, debate. And I think you're right. I, I like those titles with question marks, marks or like, you know, they're, they're trying to leave information deliberately out. Like, you know, three great stocks, you know, to buy tomorrow, you know, and you have to, you have to read who knows what those three are. We can't put them in the title. That would defeat the purpose. Right. So I have uh, a friend who, who does that. Yeah. He, uh, he, he writes for um, the Motley Fool actually, and they are excellent at, at garbage headlines. Um, and he, like one, one day was like, literally it was one day after another. One day he was like uh, three stocks to take it. The next one was like, is the S&P going to 5,000 or something like that? Literally a day later. And, and I'm like, well, are you going to take a side here? <laughs> so, you know, apparently they pay him pretty well for it. So I guess he doesn't have to take a side. Yeah. That's what the people want, right? <laughs> You're just yeah. giving the audience, you know? Exactly. You got to play both sides, uh, which is exactly, you know, selling t-shirts or selling stocks. That's exactly how you do it. I, I got to tell you one, one last story about, you know, on the point of selling those t-shirts during the election year. So I was in California and I was touring uh, Airbnb's headquarters. It's an amazing place if you ever get a chance to, to tour their headquarters. But they were also kind of hustlers like the both of you. And so they were also, their company was in debt and they were trying to like raise some money. And so during the election years, Obama-McCain was the election. They made this uh, cereal called Obama-O's and Captain McCain Crunches. And they like just sold these cereal boxes, you know, as a joke. And they made a ton of money because, you know, people just wanted these novelty uh, cereal boxes that helped them actually like raise money to keep their company going. So I just thought that like, you know, these kind of stories are like, you know, what, you know, ends up in biographies and, you know, business lore and that kind of thing. So I, I don't know. I think it's great. Yeah. I actually remember hearing about that um, where they, the Airbnb guys went into the Y Combinator office. It was like an interview because um, they were playing a Y Combinator and they do the interview and then, then it kind of goes okay. Right. They're walking out. The guy thinks he just got rejected, but then he's like, he, he remembers he brought the cereal and goes back to, uh, the guy and he's like oh by the way uh we made this and he says oh you you bought one of these boxes i've seen them all over the place he said no we made like we own obama o's and uh the guy was like what you did this you sold you know all these boxes and and uh that's how they got into white combinator it wasn't because they had a good idea it's because they made obama yeah. so 
Yeah, thank you for expanding uh, on the story. That's that's right. I, yeah, why combinators? Yeah, I just I remember that place. from yeah. a little while back. So that's awesome. I wasn't even aware of those serials, so I'm gonna have to go look up more on that story. Yeah, yeah. You have to link to the show notes. You link some yeah. Obamos. <laughs> Obamos. <laughs> Bet they're selling for a thousand bucks a box right now on eBay or something. Probably, probably. Yeah, two days from now, guys. That'll be fun. Right. Yep. Yeah, for the record, this is being uh, recorded two days before the election. Uh, everything should, I don't even know, everything might not be settled. We'll probably air this in about two weeks. And I mean, you know, the 2000 election wasn't settled in, uh, in just a, in a couple of days. It took a couple months. So any, anything could happen. That's the one thing I always try to tell anyone that's getting into the market. Just always, always have a plan to be wrong. Always know, you know, that anything can truly happen. Always have, you know. I think the successful people in the market are the ones that show up to make money, not to be right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, don't, don't sell, uh, don't sell a bunch of naked calls in the election because uh, nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this is, this has been a really fun, really fun episode. Andrew, I really appreciate you coming on and just learning about, you know, your business, your mindset going into it and just, you know, meeting another another hustler out there who's making it happen. I think it's incredible. Just, you know, the, the different things in finance, you know, I, I never would have thought to, to even start a company like this. So it, good on you. Congratulations on your success so far. And um, we'd love to check in with you in a couple of, uh, in a couple of years, see how everything's going. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to come back, you know, hopefully once I've uh, either made a hundred million dollars or I've gone bankrupt, one of the two. So I, I'd love to catch up with you guys a couple of years back, uh, Michael and Brian, so, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's been uh, it's been great. Well, well, thank you so much, Andrew. Uh, this has been Trading for Keeps. I'm Brian, and this is Michael. Uh, Raiders and review us, and we'll have another episode next week. Mm-hmm.